in honor of Halloween, which is my favorite holiday of all time, uh, we have a very special topic, and it's it's a very interesting topic. Over 300 years ago, men and women in colonial America were being accused and charged with being witches and wizards, uh, which resulted in the Salem witch trials. What are the true facts as to what happened all those years ago? Why did it happen? And how could the legal system have allowed this to happen? And most importantly, can history repeat itself? With us is the probably the foremost expert on this topic in our country, Professor Mary Beth Norton. She's a historian. She's well known for her work on American colonial history. She's a professor emeritus at Cornell University and author of the book on this topic, In the Devil's Snare. Welcome, Professor Norton. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for holding with us. We, you know, sports always comes first uh, when it comes to everything. We all know that, right? Yes, <laughs> um, sir. <laughs> um, but let's, can, if you could, can you give us just a quick background of what happened with the Salem witch trials, where it happened, when it happened, and the people involved, and um, and the kind of the length of time it all took. Sure. Um, Well, uh, everybody thinks the Salem witch trials happened in Salem, but they actually, well, the trials took place there, the actual trials, but the the, uh, incidents themselves started in what is now the town of Danvers, which was then an outlying area of the town of Salem, known as Salem Village. And in Danvers, um, in January of 1692, uh, several little girls started having fits. And the adults tried to figure out what was happening with them, and they questioned the little girls, and the little girls finally said they were, or the adults finally decided that the little girls were being bewitched. And so the, um, the result was that a number of people in Salem Village itself began to be accused of witchcraft. The judges began to question people. One um, uh, confessed, and that was Tichuba, who was the servant, a slave of the local minister. And um, from there, things expanded until at least 150 people were formally accused of being witches, not just in Salem Village, but throughout Essex County, Massachusetts. And this all happened between January of 1692 and November of 1692. There were trials in June, July, August, and September of 1692, at which 19 people were convicted, and one was and, and hanged, and one was pressed to death by heavy stones. Oh, so a couple of things that maybe I didn't know uh, before I, I listened to your lectures online, which are fabulous. Um, it, it happened in a very relatively short period of time, and not all the accusations were really kind of consistent. Now, you talked about these little girls who were having fits, but other people were accused who had different kinds of uh, behaviors. Is, isn't that true? Yes, absolutely. I came to the conclusion as a result of this book that every New England village had someone they thought of as the local witch. And what happened was, as the idea of witches being active in northern New England spread to, from village to village, people began to accuse these local people who they'd always thought were witches or had long thought were witches. And basically, how did you get to be thought to be a witch at this time? Right. Well, you got into an argument with a neighbor, and you cussed that person out. And you said something like, you better watch out. And that the next day or a week later, the, that neighbor's cow died or that child mysteriously became ill. 
And so that neighbor concluded, hmm, I'll bet that person is a witch. So there we go. Uh, and before we take a break, I, can you set the stage a little bit for us on what was going on in 1692? Remember, everyone, that, you know, we weren't a country yet, so this was still colonial America. Can you just tell us why the society was so prone to these kinds of hysterias? Well, um, it, remember, this is before the scientific revolution. Nobody knew anything about the germ theory of disease. Nobody knew anything about why certain phenomena happened. And so um, the society or local people uh, attributed unexplicable things to um, witchcraft when they, it was, I call it the default explanation. If something mysterious happened and you didn't know why it was, you concluded it was a witch um, who had something, who was, who was out to get you for some reason, usually some dispute um, that you had. And these were little, little villages where everybody fought with each other a lot. Um, so that was part of it. But also it was a time in which the government was kind of up in the air in the colony of Massachusetts. It was, uh, there was no charter at the moment, although one was on, way, on the way, and it did arrive sort of in the middle of things. There was no governor. Um, every, so there was, there was very little uh, formal authority working in the colony at the time this all happened. On top of everything else, there was a major Indian war going on on the fringes of the settlements, and everyone was very worried about the Indian attacks. Let's take a break, and when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about what kind of due process, if any, uh, the alleged witches were afforded, uh, how the trials were conducted, and uh, and 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 how how these executions were taken out. Uh, we're talking to Professor Mary Beth Norton about the Salem witch trials on WGN. We're talking about the Salem witch trials with Professor Mary Beth Norton of Cornell University, and she's the author of the book on the topic. In the Devil's Snare. Uh, Professor Norton, let's talk a little bit about the trials themselves. How were these courts set up, and did the uh, defendants, were they able to get attorneys to help them, and how did the trials uh, basically go forward? The trials were in front of a panel of judges. Uh, There were nine judges uh, appointed for the trials. We know that five had to sit on any given trial. Alas, we don't know which which five were there. Was it always the same five? We just don't know that. But in any event, the uh, defendants had no right under English law at the time, which was, of course, followed in the colonies, uh, to have a defense attorney. They could defend themselves. One thing they could do would be to object to a juror being seated. Eventually, there was one defendant who was very active in, def- in objecting to certain jurors who were seated for his trial. But the others uh, don't seem to have done that. Um, and they could present uh, evidence in their behalf. They, those things tended to be um, petitions from their neighbors attesting to their good behavior. But the only trained uh, lawyer in the entire process, including the judges who were not trained lawyers, was um, a, one of the prosecutors. So this was not a fair process by any means. Whether well, from- it's not a fair process by modern standards, but it was what was done throughout the colonies. There was nothing unusual about it in that respect. Can you tell Professor Norton from your research whether or not the public was really in favor of this kind of prosecution, or were they wary of it and kind of disgusted by it? Or is that a hard thing to kind of determine all those over 300 years ago? 
Well, it's not actually not that hard because we know that people were very engaged. We know that many people came to watch the examinations. We know that many people came to watch the trials and seemed to be very much while the trials were going on, as I said, between June and September and June and, and September of 1692, very much in favor of the trials. There didn't seem to be much um, uh, opposition or criticism at all until very late in the process. So about 19, you said, were executed. What happened to the other? You said there were about 150 or so uh, people accused. What happened to the other people who were not uh, convicted and executed? Yes, yeah, so only 27 people were actually tried formally by the court. Uh, eventually, the court was dissolved by the governor, and that was in October of 1692, uh, uh, there were new trials in January and May of 1693. Pretty much everyone who was tried then was let go because by then the hysteria had played itself out and um, people realized that the evidence was lacking, so they pretty much let people go. And some people never had an actual judicial process at all. They were just let out of jail. And can you talk just briefly about what happened after the trials were over and what efforts the state made to sort of say, I'm sorry for what they did to these people? Yeah, the, um, the, what happened after the trials were over was one of the five judges, five years later, formally apologized for his role in the trials. Twelve jurors, we don't know if they were, how many tri- trials those jurors served on. We actually don't know who the jurors were. So we don't know how many, whether these men worked over and over again on trials or were just on one trial. Anyway, 12 jurors apologized as well uh, five years later. And eventually the colony of Massachusetts did compensate uh, people who were convicted and not hanged, and other people who were hanged, they compensated their families. But the uh, ideas of the reconciliation actually went on until well into the 18th century. Uh, it was uh, th- There were families of the uh, convicted who were still petitioning for relief to the colony of Massachusetts uh, into the 1720s and 1730s. And it was only very recently that the state of Massachusetts formally absolved everybody. Interesting. And, um, you know, one of the things about being a historian, and I'm sure you deal with this in all of your studies and all of your research and lecturing is, you know, the relevance of history is, will we repeat what, what happened in the past? And we do see a lot of history repeating. Do you, when you think of all of the things that happened during this hysteria, this crisis, uh, in the Salem area, what do you, do you see this happening again? And do you think anything in history is, is similar to what happened? Sure. Well, actually, other historians have dealt with that. I haven't explicitly, but one historian, for example, has drawn a parallel between what happened in uh, Massachusetts in 1692 to what happened in the United States recently in the 1780s in the hysteria over child sexual abuse at uh, daycare centers where people in Massachusetts and in California were convicted and sentenced to jail for many years on what now, in retrospect, seems to be extremely flimsy evidence. 
I mean, would you even, I would just have like literally a minute, but would you even liken it to maybe a little bit about what happened during, uh, after 9-11 where certain groups were marginalized groups were kind of accused and, and, and suspected, uh, without any evidence? Absolutely. Um, it's, that's, that's another analogy that, in fact, reviewers of my book, because the book was originally published in 2002, and so it was reviewed just a year after 9-11, and many of the reviewers of my book said, my gosh, this sounds just like what happened to American Muslims after 9-11. Very, very interesting. And is your, your book is not in print anymore, is it, Professor? No, it is. It's available in paperback from vintage paperbacks, and you could all, anybody could also get it from a library. Uh, I think it's even available in an ebook now. It wasn't originally, or in a. I know it's available in an ebook. It might be available in an auto book. I'm not sure of that. But in any event, it is available in paperback from vintage. In the Devil's Snare. It's very much in print. It still sells well. Great. In, in, I, I'm sorry, I didn't know that. In the Devil's Snare, uh, this is uh, Professor Mary Beth Norton from Cornell University. Thank you so much for joining us and enlightening us about this fascinating topic, and happy Halloween to you. Okay, thank you, and thank you for right. your comments about my book. All right, take care.